Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If it's not in our best interest, it's not in his either. And he's going to speak up about it. This is The Roy Green Show. All right. Boom blue on the sea. Loose and complete under sky. So smoky blue green. So, what's the most important issue? Whenever we have election campaigns, what's the most important issue? Jobs. The economy. Always named as the most important issues. Frank McKenna is the former Premier of New Brunswick, a past Canadian ambassador to the United States, and he's the deputy chair of the TD Bank. And I spoke with Mr. McKenna yesterday about the drubbing Canada's economy is voluntarily accepting and the dollar cost of that drubbing, which of course means it's costing jobs. Like $117 billion over seven years, because some people who should know better are completely stubborn And in Quebec, for example, stopped the Energy East pipeline, carrying Alberta oil to East Coast refineries, for export at world prices to countries like China and India. Meanwhile, the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension has run into the delay we've talked about in detail, as the government of British Columbia is attempting to secure from the courts the right to do exactly that, delay the Trans Mountain extension. So Canadian oil will not be able to be exported overseas as quickly as it needs to be and bring huge money into Canada to benefit Canadians from coast to coast. So what I want to do is play back for you the conversation that I had with Frank McKenna yesterday, and then we'll have some time to take some calls. And please note and listen for this. During the conversation with Mr. McKenna, he mentioned that Canada imports 700,000 barrels of oil daily for East Coast refineries from other countries, so they actually have something to refine. Last week, I had the 2015 number, and it was 650,000 barrels a day. I thought that was insane. And now it's 700,000 barrels each and every day. Here's the conversation. Your study, the TD Bank study, would show that $117 billion lost over seven years of selling our oil at a discount to the United States. Would you speak to that, please? Well, uh, I think that it's consistent with many, many other studies that have been done, some even more recently that point out um, the, the very sharp discount that we're receiving from President Trump and his friends in the United States for our oil because we have no other markets that we can sell them to. So as a result of that, um, oil is discounted between 15 and $30 a barrel uh, going into the United States and big refineries down there. Um, and meantime, uh, <laughs> the ultimate irony, of course, is that on the East Coast, we've got refineries that have to uh, use oil that comes in at world prices. Uh, six, uh, I think it's six to 700,000 barrels a day of oil coming in, being exported from around the world because we can't get access to Canadian oil. So it's the ultimate irony that we're paying uh, through the nose at one end of the country and that we're getting hosed down at the other end of the country. Did it surprise you that Energy East was stopped abruptly in the province of mm-hmm. Quebec, particularly when they had gone through that horrific uh, tragedy at Lac Megantic? 
Yeah, but look, um, ostensibly uh, the reason given, uh, which the government of Canada um, uh, tries to uh, promulgate, is, is that the market conditions had changed for the for the company. Uh, that's not my view. My view is the regulatory burden became so high that uh, no no company could really expose their shareholders to that those kinds of losses. Having seen uh, how difficult it's been to uh, build pipelines elsewhere, as a result, we don't end up with um, any access to national oil or gas in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, we, we've got a refinery that's stranded there that has to pay world oil prices. We've got a massive investment uh, potential of a, of, a, of a new refinery that could uh, put as many as 5,000 uh, people a year to work for the next five or six years if we could have had access to that oil. A huge amount of wealth uh, destroyed for us uh, because of the inability to get a pipeline to our marketplace. And now we're looking at an extension that's required for Trans Mountain Pipeline that has been approved by the federal government, and all the regulatory uh, I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed, and the British Columbia government is going to the Court of Appeals to find out if they have the the, the legislative power to stop it, and the federal government, I think, is, to, is, is, is just treading water. Mr. McKenna, how frustrating is it to see what's going on with Trans Mountain? Well, it's, it's extraordinarily frustrating, um, I, I'd say, as a citizen, but for our country as well. It, it, it's a, it's a, a clear example of the country not working appropriately. Let's remember a couple of things. First of all, this is not a new route. Uh, this route has, has transported oil for something like 60 years uh, in the existing pipeline. In fact, it's been upgraded five or six times. Uh, what this is is a new fight, not a new route. Uh, secondly... Uh, there are at least 43 indigenous communities in the path of that pipeline that have signed benefit agreements with the uh, with the pipeline proponent. So this mythology that all First Nations are against it is wrong. In fact, it would seem that not even the majority are. In fact, it would be a, a minority that would be. And thirdly, another myth that needs to be exploded is that this is not reducing the amount of oil being produced. On the contrary, oil is being shipped by train. It's also being shipped at pipelines which are so compressed that we're suffering huge discounts. So bottom line is oil is still being produced. Canadian uh, taxpayers are, are, are getting absolutely savage because we're losing uh, tens of billions of dollars a year because we just can't get the right economic rent for our, for our resource. And I think that's just criminal. It really is a head shaker, isn't it, that you have, this, you have all of this waiting. It's all there. It's just waiting to be exported. And it's, it's just a matter of, con- of completing the technical requirements, and, and then you can get at the business of, of exporting your oil at, a, at world prices and bringing a, a money into this country, which would help everyone. It's, it's a, just a tremendous head shaker, and I'm being polite when I say that. Do you, do you have confidence that Trans Mountain is going to be completed, or do you think Kinder Morgan is just going to walk away and then it's going to be up to Canadians to foot a $7.4 billion bill and still run into objections? Uh, the pipeline's going to be built. Um, it, it just can't, <clears throat> it can't not be built. If, 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 if that were to be the case, uh, the rest of the world would look at us uh, literally as, as the country that can't get the things done. Uh, trust me, I just got back from Asia. And, uh, and, and, and I was talking to a lot of investors about LNG, which is something that BC wants. And, and these investors are saying, look, we, we need to see what's going to happen with Kinder Morgan. Why would we take a chance on a province that just can't, can't get things done? 
remember this as well, Roy, um, so that people can put it in perspective. If we applied the same logic today uh, 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 for projects in the past, we would not have a Trans-Canada Highway linking our country. We wouldn't have a railroad linking our country. We wouldn't have the St. Lawrence Seaway. We wouldn't have the Port of Vancouver. Uh, a, a lot of the uh, projects which create huge wealth for our country would never be built if you applied the kind of criteria that we're seeing today. And, and for that reason as well, we have to demonstrate as a country that we work. We're not just a collection of provinces with veto powers at the at the borders, but we're a country that actually works and that each premier is bigger than his own individual province and also represents a national interest. Um, and if we can't establish that principle, this, this country is doomed to really a second-class existence um, compared to the potential it would have to be a world leader. I spoke with uh, Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan twice in the last few weeks. And uh, Premier Mo was talking about the British Columbia effort, Premier Horgan's effort to delay or stop the uh, the pipeline, the Trans Mountain completion, <clears throat> extension completion. And he said, if the Premier, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm close, he said, if the Premier of British Columbia can do that, then the question is, do we have a country? Yeah, well, I can, look, I can understand the frustration of, of the Premier here. I... Um, I, I, I'm sure that uh, Premier Horgan is 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 uh, principally uh, principle driven. Um, I have no reason to think otherwise. I think he's wrong on two very very fundamental issues, and I think as he collects more experience as a premier, uh, he'll realize that. I, I can tell you, as a young premier, I was wrong on on issues that I I wish I had uh, had had a more thoughtful uh, approach to at the beginning. Uh, he's wrong, for example, in, in saying that his interest and his only interest is British Columbia. That's simply not the case. I, I've never had a day in which I couldn't proudly say that uh, I, was, I was a Canadian first and a New Brunswicker second. And I think most premiers are like that. Um, this is a precious country that we have. And surely to goodness, we can pursue our provincial interest while respecting the national interest as well. Number two, the, the sense in one of his recent interviews that every individual First Nations has a veto. If that's the case, then he might as well uh, throw the keys on the table and walk away from his province. The Supreme Court has not gone that far, even though I, I must confess they, they have thoroughly muddled the jurisprudence on this to the point where it's almost impossible to figure out what they're really saying. But if, if that's the case, that means that, that every First Nations would have to sign off that's that's a bar that, that nobody can get over. And remember, when you go to First Nations communities, you'll often find that it's not just the chief that has to sign, but uh, tribal elders may say they have a veto right as well. We have a project in New Brunswick where uh, all of the reservations have signed off, and two grandmothers are picketing the site, claiming they've got the right to stop it. So you, 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 we've got to have some common sense prevail here now, and, and, and we've got to... We've got, we've got to establish some means of getting decisions made uh, that are not going to be by absolute uh, veto power of everybody involved. Otherwise, every province would have a veto. Every, uh, every municipality might have a veto in the country. That's a recipe for disaster, for gridlock and disaster. So we, we, just, we just can't allow uh, those kinds of precedents to prevail if, if we're going to have a real country. It's Frank McKenna. Deputy Chair of the TD Bank, if we're going to have a real country. See, what we need is somebody in the Prime Minister's chair who can make decisions, who's willing to make 
intelligent decisions. Necessary decisions. Not fly off to Peru for a meeting and then fly back for a teleconference with Mr. Horgan and Ms. Notley, but to actually engage. The man never wears a jacket, so roll up your sleeves, Prime Minister Trudeau, and get engaged. You say that you want the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Get on it. Less than four weeks to satisfy Kinder Morgan to invest. And they said they won't. They won't continue to put money into it if they're not assured they'll be able to build the pipeline extension without interference. This is all very serious stuff. It matters to each and every one of us in this country. And that's why the question has been raised periodically by Premier Mo of Saskatchewan, and you heard Mr. McKenna just lean toward that. If we're a country, then we do things for all of us. We'll come back in a minute. Stay with us. He has been called many things, but we just call him Roy. This is the Roy Green Show. There's a Bloomberg news story that's making the rounds today, and uh, it's been carried by the Calgary Herald, and it's also on uh, National Post paper, Post Media. And the headline is, Alberta leads provinces in economic growth in this new StatsCan GDP report. And there's a tweet from our federal environment minister, Catherine McKenna, about this. And the minister tweets, Alberta is fastest growing economy in the country. We're taking action on climate change, including putting a price on pollution. So first of all, I have no idea what that means. That is, that's not a sentence. It's, it's not. Alberta is fastest growing economy in the country. We're taking action on climate change, including putting a price on pollution. I'm sure you wanted to say something else, minister, but... Anyway, that's not a sentence. Catherine Swift, the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and a, an economist, and a weekly contributor to this program on our Beauties and the Beast segment on Saturdays, is going to share her thoughts on that Bloomberg News story in about seven minutes. But what I want to do here is read something to you And this is from um, the Vancouver Sun, and it was a column by Tristan Hopper. And I'm just going to read part of it, because some of the things that I'm going to raise here, or that Tristan Hopper raises, have been raised by callers to the program, and we've dealt with this. And I think it's important that we read, that that I just read this to you. Um, The Trans Mountain Pipeline might actually reduce the amount of oil likely to spill in the BC interior. An expansion of the pipeline would severely undercut the vast numbers of oil trains that are currently shipping bitumen to the coast. And an oil train is vastly more prone to spill than a pipeline. The Lac-Megantic rail disaster isn't merely one of Canada's deadliest rail disasters, it's also one of the country's largest oil spills. Regular tanker traffic isn't uniquely dangerous to killer whales. 
Lots of anti-pipeline literature has been premised on the notion that even without a spill, the Trans Mountain Pipeline will manage to get B.C.'s orcas killed. There are 76 orcas who live in the Salish Sea, constituting the only endangered North American orca population. Eco-Justice called the pipeline a death knell to orcas, while the Rain Coast Conservation Foundation called it the death certificate for the southern resident killer whale population. The theory is that increased tanker traffic will result in more noise pollution and a greater risk of vessels smashing into breaching orcas. Noise and vessel collisions are indeed a hazard to B.C. orcas. But by 2026, Port Metro Vancouver is expected to process 6,500 vessels per year. Of that total, only 4.6% will represent the 300 extra tankers expected to be brought by an expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and 6,500 doesn't even include the vast array of ferries, yachts, barges, cruise ships, and fishing vessels plying the Salish Sea each day. In the Juan de Fuca Strait alone, there were 18,503 individual vessel movements in 2012, including tankers headed to the massive Cherry Point refinery located just south of the border in Washington State. Of all the industries bringing spinning propellers into the habitat of the Salish Sea orcas, it's notable that only Canadian-bound tankers have been singled out as being responsible for their death certificate. It's reasonable to expect a marine spill would not happen. Um, And uh, then Tristan Harper carries on. There are thousands of them, um, and the vast majority will work, spend their entire careers, these are tankers, without ever suffering a single significant spill. Even as global oil consumption has soared and sea lanes have become increasingly packed with tankers, the amount of oil spilling into the ocean has plummeted. In 1974, there were nearly 3,000 oil spills of more than seven tons, according to the data maintained by the International Tanker Owners Pollution Federation. In 2016, there were fewer than 100. The decrease closely mirrors a similar decrease in commercial aviation crashes over the same period. In both cases, industry responded to each accident with new safety measures with the inevitable result that spill-causing mistakes have plummeted. That's part of the column that was written by Tristan Hopper, and the headline of the column is, is the Trans Mountain Pipeline really an ocean-murdering hellspawn like B.C. says it is? When we come back, Catherine Swift will have a look at that story that Bloomberg News uh, put out that is being circulated across Canada about a recovery of the Alberta economy. Don't go away.